Holy Scripture comes from Exodus chapter 3. We'll read the whole of the chapter together. If you'll stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, out of the midst of a bush. He looked and beheld, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you, that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. Show, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy may it be preached for you. You may be seated. And as we come to this portion of God's word, let us pray for his help. Almighty God, we come to this, in some ways, most holy of topics, your name, and what we are to do with it, how we are to treat it, how we are to respond to it. And so you, might you teach us anew about the majesty of who you are and how you reveal yourself by your name. And that you are the God of our fathers. That all those whom you have redeemed, we stand in the line of those whom you have purchased in the blood of Christ. Even before he came. How wonderful it is that we are the children of Abraham. Because we serve the God of Abraham. Who has been faithful since at least this time and so long before. And so might you teach us anew about the wonders of calling upon your name. Overcome the deficiencies of the preacher, perhaps in a special way, um, just with physical uh, obstacles this evening. And bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word to bring forth fruit in our hearts, to love you more, to serve you better. We ask it all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In Romeo and Juliet, William Shakespeare set out the idea, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. And so he thought it didn't really matter what we call something, since names don't really seem to amount to much for him. We really just invent labels that we call things, and so we ought not to place too much stock in them. Now, 
Perhaps Shakespeare's point might, ap- might apply to some things in the world. Um, if we called ice cream mushy junk, I would, I would probably still eat it with just as much enthusiasm. But as true as the flexibility of names is for some things, uh, I'm not sure that we could apply it to everything. Um, I've never really liked my, my own name, but it's better than if my parents had named me Garbage Can or something like that. I, I think it would be hard to get much credibility as a preacher uh, with a name like that. And so perhaps at least some things do seem more appealing depending on how they are named. And even more, it's hard to get around how most of our personal names mean something to us, even if we don't like them. It's actually a big thing to come to that point where you're ready to get rid of it. If you're of the age where you can choose it, most people don't. And sometimes I have questions about the people who do. Uh, Not all the time, but um, certainly in Scripture, names are meant to express something about the person's identity. Parents named their children in hopes of of capturing who they were in that name. That's why oftentimes, or at least recurrently, God would take it upon himself to rename some of his people so that their name reflected something true about what he was shaping them to be and how he would use them. And as God reveals his name to us, we must learn to appreciate that it likewise expresses who he is. God makes his name known to us so that we might know who he is and how to call on him. God's name is then of supreme importance for us to know what ultimate reality even is. Exodus 20, verse 7, recounts for us the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Something serious is at stake there. This is pretty obvious just from a plain reading. And the third commandment enjoins us to use God's name rightly. As we get to this command, we can start to see, as we've worked through two of them so far, right? How there is true development, in a way, from one commandment to the next. The first commandment instructs us about the true God. And the second commandment instructs us about how we worship the correct God correctly. And now the third commandment is about appealing to that correct God correctly. We must invoke him in the right manner, by the right use of his name. Now as we've worked through the Ten Commandments, lots of kind of introductory considerations, and then finally getting to the things themselves, we've worked uh, on them as a summary of our moral obligations before God. Since the the Ten Commandments describe a a snapshot of God's own character, a window into what His righteousness is like, that standard standard of righteousness forever binds us as the creatures made in His image. Since 
we as his image bearers are meant to reflect his goodness into the world, we have no other more fundamental guide to our holiness than this description of God's own holiness. This this description of his holiness summarized in the Ten Commandments. Each of the commands is also like a compressed statement of a, of a certain kind of obligation. Each one of them uh, is not limited to the thing itself, right? E- each implies... The Christian, the tr- Christian tradition has not until very recently accepted the idea of you can pare it down to, to just the bare minimum and then you're fine uh, in terms of realizing how to apply the Ten Commandments. It's a topic for another time. Um, but the point that we're considering is that each of them implies that further duties uh, are either required or other things are forbidden by what is explicitly said in the commandment. For example, the sixth commandment forbids murder, I mean, on its surface, but it also entails that we ought to work to preserve life. The ninth commandment that forbids lying, bearing false witness, also entails that we strive for the cause of truth, the promotion of truth. So it's not just, the obligation isn't just as simple as, well, I didn't say something that was false. And the third commandment concerns how we are supposed to use God's name. It forbids us using it in vain. What does that mean? What does it implore us to do? And so the main point is that God's name reveals his holiness and binds us to him. God's name reveals his holiness and binds us to him. And we're going to think about that in three points. Identity, invocation, and inscribes. That, yeah. That one falls flat. Sometimes these don't work. Um, but now you'll remember it because I made fun of it. So, identity. Let's start with identity. Uh, what does the third commandment tell us about God? Uh, what are we to learn of his character? I mean, if, if, our, if our three kind of coordinates for, for thinking through uh, a full interpretation of, of this is, uh, what does the commandment tell us about God? Uh, how does it apply to us today? And how does it lead us to Christ? What does the third commandment tell us about God? Now, throughout Scripture, God actually tells us various names that he has. Um, in Genesis 14, right? He had said to Abraham that he is El Elyon, which means God Most High. The, re- the reality about God in this name is that the true God is supreme over all things. In Genesis 17, 1, God said to Abraham that he is uh, El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. And the reality revealed in this name is that God is sovereign and reigns over the whole universe. And each time God tells us one of these names, it shows us something about who he is and how we should relate to him. And as we see in Exodus 3, 14... The foundational name 
that God has revealed is Yahweh. I am. Just like his other names, this one tells us something, and perhaps something uh, most all-encompassing about who he is. Now, the interesting thing is uh, the word Yahweh is just a Hebrew verb. Um, and in this verse, you, you translate it as I am. <laughs> uh, and that's just what it is. It's, it doesn't kind of stand out as a proper name, which I think is catching because God is, is wanting to catch Moses off guard by that. Now, interestingly, there is some flexibility about how to translate it. So it, it could be I just simply I am. It could be uh, I will be. Or, or even could be I will cause to be. Now the point, any way that you, you sliced it, whichever one you, and there's nothing wrong with the, the way it stands. I'm not trying to tell us we should change it. The, the point that stands out no matter how we cash that out is that this name communicates to us that God exists in a way unlike any other being. He is different. He is the one who just is. And that's why the name Yahweh reveals God's character. It reveals that he is the true God who is. All, all of us creatures, we have life only because God is there. And because he gives us life, he has given life to us. That he is known as I am shows us that life starts in God, who is life itself. Now let's keep reading in Exodus 15 to 17. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, and here, um, so if you see the Lord in all caps, it's, it's translating uh, Yahweh um, for, for various reasons. They've decided to, to do it that way. Um, but it's that name, it's that divine name that's captured there. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now notice that one of the things that's going on here is, as God continues to speak to Moses, is that God name, God's name not only reveals who he is in himself, but also ties to what he has done for his people. Right? Yahweh I am, is the God who covenanted with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who has promised good to his people. And so as we pull all of these things together, we see that God's identity is revealed in his name as maker, 
and as Redeemer. And that brings us to our second point. Invocation. Invocation. How does the third commandment apply to us today? Westminster Shorter Catechism 44 asks, What is required in the third commandment? It says, The third commandment requires the holy, excuse me, requires the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. And the flip side of that is explained in question 55, right? What's forbidden? The third commandment forbids all profaning or abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. Now that's an interesting one. How do we put these instructions into practice? I think the first one that that always jumps to people's mind, and it's true, we can't write it off, we have to, to deal with it, but, but I think the problem is when we think the only way that this comes to bear is when we use God's name as a curse word, right? Whenever we use God's name, speak his name, Jesus' name, to, to, to swear, or as, a, as an exclamation, we are abusing the Lord's name, Perhaps in the most serious way. And so we should not use God's name in any other way than as an affectionate address to him as the way that we know the true God as he's revealed himself to us. And so certainly that is something on the <coughs> excuse me on the table, and it's an important one. I think that we kind of assume, or at least most people assume, that that's where the list ends, right? And, and I don't think that's true. Because, so, for second, um, in second place, maybe a less obvious way that this happens is when we try to invoke God's <coughs> name to advance our personal agendas. Right now, we see this most clearly when someone says to you something like, well, God wants you to. And, and unless that sentence ends with something along the lines of trust in Jesus or repent of your sin, it's, it's very likely to be misleading and even an abuse of God's name. One that violates the third commandment. Now, I mean, that's... It's low-hanging fruit when we take on the kind of like weird versions of this where people are saying, like, God wants you to sell your car to me. It just so happens that you have a really nice car and they want it for cheap. Um, but I think we, like, when, we, when we pull at this in a different way, we see that it's really easy for us to believe that our strongest convictions about the right things to do and the right way to do the right things are delivered to us directly from God. How quickly we assume that, that what is most valuable to us has to, to come directly from the Lord. Now, we can think that our settle, and I mean, that leads us to think, right, that our settle, settled convictions 
must be God's will for everyone. You know, you've got that low-level issue. Your neighbor wants you to sell sell your car. They've invoked God's name in a vain way, in an empty way, right? That's what vanity is about. It's empty. It's hollow to which God isn't, and they've invoked his name in a way that, well, God hasn't committed himself to that use. But now we can up the ante on this issue when it comes to, I mean, our, our most sensitive cultural things and, and our political goals, even outside the pulpit. I think it would be wildly inappropriate for someone to say, God commands you to vote for X person or Y policy. Right? Now, we can say things like, I mean, maybe not in the pulpit, but to each other, we can say things like, Christian wisdom suggests that this vote is the best way forward for everyone. Okay, fine. That, that makes sense. We certainly want to work through cultural issues and hard problems in light of our Christian convictions. But to tie God's name, to invoke God's name... In, in regards to a worldly outcome that we want, when God has not said explicitly, we are using his name in an empty way. It's not a way that he's endorsed. He has not filled that way. And so it's empty. It's vain. Kevin DeYoung explains it this way. He's a nice guy. Yeah, in case I seem cagey, I'm going to quote a really nice guy. That's where I'm going with this. Uh, If we use the name of God to ascribe a false sense of authority to our ideas, plans, or opinions, we violate the third commandment. We we cannot have an invocation of God's name to to promote ourselves when his name is meant to be invoked to promote his glory, not our agenda. And that brings us to our third point, in scribes. How does the third commandment point us to Christ? Um, I want to think about two passages. Um, Hebrews 1, 3 to 5. He, meaning Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. Oh, imprint would have been a good one. Um, Oh, an inheritance. Okay, never mind, sorry. Uh, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Explaining... uh, For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The name of Christ is God the Son, right? He is the eternal Son, Yahweh himself, the second person of the the Trinity, who assumed human nature for our salvation, which gets explained in Philippians 2, 8-11. Christ is... Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if we read Isaiah 45, 23, we know that this name given to Jesus in exaltation is God's own name. Because that's what he's promising to me in Isaiah. To me, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. So as every knee bows and every tongue confesses Jesus, we see that Jesus is God, having the name of God. Jesus stands as God the Son, risen and exalted for our salvation. And here's the question. And here's the question, right, that brings all this together. What does he do with his name? Where does his name go? Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Christ takes his name, the very name of God, and he puts it on us. He labels us as his people, placing his name upon us in baptism. He inscribes, he writes his name upon our hearts as we receive him by faith, knowing him to be the God who made heaven and earth and delivers us from all our sin. And so the same, as we know the name of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, the same thing is happening as that bush. We shouldn't call it the burning bush. Because what clearly is not happening? It says there's a flame on it, and it's not being consumed. And that's what happens in the Lord Jesus Christ. The presence of God rests upon you, and you are not consumed because you have been named as the people of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful to bear the name Christian because it means we belong to the Lord Jesus, to the second person of the Trinity, who has made Yahweh known in such a full way as maker and as our redeemer. And so we're thankful to be labeled with his name, to be marked by his name, by the name of the triune God. And we pray you help us. Keep it holy, never to use it vainly, to use it in a full way, and to set aside all vanity, that we might treasure up the beauty of the very name of God. We ask it all in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand to receive your benediction? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this day and forevermore. And all God's people say, Amen. Good to be with you today.